This is Keeping Current with Wayne Potter. Welcome to the Keeping Current show. This is Wayne Potter, your host. This is the place where we talk about the ideas, issues, and trends that shape our everyday life. I'm meeting today with uh, Joni Komodo Reeves, uh, who is here to tell us today about the Japanese American experience. And I want to thank you very much for allowing me to record your story about your family, and especially about your being held prisoner in one of the U.S. Japanese internment camps in Idaho. But rather than spend my time interviewing you today, I would like you to just go ahead with your program. Um, because I'm really anxious to hear it. So, Joni, you have the floor. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to meet you too, Wayne. This is an opportunity for me to uh, tell my story again. I uh, I am a I do uh, ha- am a storyteller. I, I don't mean I mean real stories, and it is my pleasure to be here today to share this with you. I am a third-generation Japanese-American, and I'm called a sansei. I had been imprisoned with my family by the United States government for a crime that we did not commit. You know, we all thought that we were Americans. We were born and raised here. But our crime was that we looked like the enemy who America was at war with in 1941. President Roosevelt's Executive Order 9066 was the order which shaped the lives of Japanese Americans living on the West Coast. We lost our home, our freedom, our hopes, and our dreams. And we were stripped of our constitutional rights, including our identity and our dignity. We had been placed in desolate American prisons with guard towers and searchlights and barbed wire that surrounded our camp. And we had armed guards with rifles to shoot us if they thought we would escape. And the government called this protective custody. I'm gonna give you a history first, uh, which led up to uh, this incarceration. Ever since the immigration of Japanese, many laws had been created to prohibit our assimilation in the United States. My grandparents and my great-grandparents came from Japan to the United States to better their lives. America was the land of opportunity, and Japan was going through political changes and drought and famine. And with the Chinese Exclusion Act, that greatly impacted the recruitment of Japanese immigrants to work on the railroads, the forest, and the farms. Um, The Northwest was expanding. And so my grandfather and my great-grandfather came to Oregon in the early 1900s, and they worked in the lumber mills, and they cut trees to make uh, railroad ties. They lived in the forest camps, and they saved their money and sent for my grandmothers from Japan. And so they all settled in Portland, which was the processing center for immigrants. Portland was the hub of activity, and it was a 
vibrant community of first-generation Japanese, and they were called Isseis. Uh, my grandparents had established their roots, and they helped grow a community in Nihonmachi. That was known as Japantown, which covered 10 city blocks from West Burnside to Northwest Gleason and from Northwest First to 6th Avenue. Mm-hmm. Families grew and settled in this district, and soon churches, schools, stores, social clubs added to the vibrancy and growth of this district. And today, that district is called Old Town. Now, my great-grandparents and my grandparents operated a hotel, a bathhouse, a restaurant, and a laundry, and they were all called the Mikado. And they prospered, and their, their, their businesses were to pro- provide housing um, to all these Japanese bachelors that were coming to the Northwest working. Uh, my grandparents were honest and hardworking people. Um, they paid their taxes. They were law-abiding, and they eventually had three children. Their American-born children. Let's see if I can move this up. Their American-born children were called nieces, and they were second generation. Um, In this picture, you'll see my mother. She's seen in the photo, front row, bottom left. That's my mom, Keo. Um, But despite working and living here in America, my Issei grandparents had still been denied uh, citizenship. And they couldn't own land and they couldn't vote. And so they they remained as aliens. And as early as 1906, the United States Supreme Court ruled that all Chinese and Japanese remain as aliens. And the law stated that to become a naturalized citizen, you had to belong to the Caucasian race and you had to be white. So the color of skin became legal qualifications for citizenship. There was less discrimination towards European immigrants who did have the opportunity to become naturalized U.S. citizens. In 1917, um, U.S. laws had banned any new immigrants coming from Japan. And in 1923, the Oregon Alien Land Law was designed, and it was pretty much done to shore up the white economic status. A lot of the Japanese worked on the farms, and they were, they were okay as laborers, but when they started to become farmers themselves and grow their own crops and become competitive, they were resented. The law had stated since aliens were ineligible for citizenship, they couldn't own or lease land in Oregon. Um, there were powerful economic interest groups and politicians, which limited the opportunities for success, and they pretty much kept us se- segregated. Also, the United States Congress passed the Immigration Exclusion Act, which barred any more immigrants coming from Japan. And what they did is they created a, a law that said, um, 
for you to enter the United States, you would have to read five lines from the Constitution. And of course, this excluded the Asians since they could only read and speak their native languages. Also in the city of Portland, uh, regulations kept us segregated from living in other parts of Portland. There was redlining. So the Japanese remained in Japantown, Nihomachi. It was made clear that um, we were not welcome and we didn't belong in America. And they considered us as being crafty and we they thought we had disease and they thought that we were diabolical and, they, and we were also considered the yellow menace. So that was the racial climate uh, before the war. So the attack on December 7th, 1941, was the spark, which ignited a long history of systemic exclusion and anti-Japanese sentiments. And it gave our government reason to imprison 120,000 Japanese who were living on the West Coast. Two thirds were Americans, like my Nisei parents and me, Asansei, and one-third were immigrants, like my Issei grandparents. Within hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, many of my parents' friends were rounded up, and they were like uh, leaders of our communities, like doctors or priests or teachers, and they were all arrested and whisked away to Department of Justice camps. Um, they went against their, they were arrested against their will and um, without due process of law. And they were all Issei's. They were all immigrants. They were the first generation elders. And they were arrested because they thought of them as being potential threat to national security. And there was great fear in our community. And of course, mass hysteria in our general US population. There was suspicion and hate groups, and that accelerated. There was propaganda and malicious lies that were circulated, and the government had even crafted propaganda films. Articles had been printed that said that the Japanese farmers were poisoning uh, people, and we were in collusion with the enemy and part of being a part of the fifth column. Um, and the propaganda said that the Japanese living on the West Coast had powerful radios that transmitted messages to Japan. Uh, there was a Lieutenant General John DeWitt, who was a racist, and he would become administrator of the internment program. He declared that American loyalty was based on ethnicity and blood. And he was quoted as saying, you know, a Jap is a Jap. I don't care if they are American citizens. We just need to gather them up and get rid of them. Um, we have to worry about the Japanese all the time until they are wiped off the map. Mm -hmm. They are the enemy race. 
My father uh, was a Japanese-American businessman, and he had pledged support and loyalty to the United States. And with other Japanese-Americans here in Portland, they sent a telegram to President Roosevelt pleading for the release of their friends who had already been put into the Department of Justice camps. And my dad helped raise money for the war effort. He donated to the Sunshine Dairy here in Portland. But this meant nothing. It was all to deaf ears. And within a few months later, we too were visited by the FBI and we would be rounded up and we would be stripped of everything and forced to live in a U.S. concentration camp. Now, I am going to tell you an anecdotal story um, that was told to me by my family. Um, I have little memory of this, but my mom, dad, and my other family members would tell me about this. I had been a very talkative three-year-old. I still do a lot of talking, <laughs> but I was a chatterbox at three. And anyway, the FBI came into our home. And they came because my grandfather, an Issei immigrant, had lived with us. And he was a very devout uh, member of the Shinto faith. And that faith was considered an enemy religion. And so they came and they searched and seized anything that would be considered contraband. And they removed my grandfather's Shinto reading books, his prayer books, because they were all written in Japanese. And then they took my father's binoculars and his camera, since they thought he might be um, taking pictures for the Japanese military. And they were looking for guns. And then they asked every member of our household if there were any guns in the house. And they even pulled me aside. I was only three years old. But they still asked me. And to my parents' surprise, I said, yes, we have a gun. And I pointed to the attic and I told the FBI agents that we had a gun upstairs in the attic. I took them up there. Or we pointed to a trunk and they opened the trunk and there was indeed a gun. But it was a toy gun. Oh. It was a toy gun, and it had been stored away. It once belonged to my teenage uncle who lived with us. Oh, of course. Um, there was a lot of embarrassed laughter by the FBI agents. And, of course, there were big sighs of relief from my parents. Anyway, um, there, uh, there was the, at the atmosphere in that time was so awful. My parents were always in fear of everything. And every day there were new military orders that were issued to its citizens here in Portland. Um, and they had imposed a curfew from, we couldn't leave our homes from 8 p.m. until 6 a.m. Our fate was really sealed by that Lieutenant General John DeWitt. And he had set up military zones on the West Coast. Executive Order 9066 had been enacted. No congressman objected. It took one hour in the Senate 
and only a half an hour in the House for this to become law. Politicians and business owners were happy to see this happen. So there was that three-tiered process of exclusion, removal, incarceration was now law. And Executive Order 9066 was meant to include Italians and Germans since we were at war with them as well, but they were spared since they constituted the second largest foreign-born population at that time. And unlike the Asians, European immigrants, as I mentioned earlier, were allowed to become naturalized citizens, and they had already been enmeshed into American life. So it would be difficult to imprison them. President Roosevelt and Secretary of War Simpson felt that the Italians would not pose any danger to the war effort like the Japanese. It's been said that history suggests that President Roosevelt caved in to DeWitt and the politicians and this was clearly a racially motivated act for political and economic reasons. We had no one had stood up for us. We had no protest marches and no resistance movements like today. So um, with only what we could carry, we had seven to 10 days, only seven to 10 days to leave our homes, our businesses, our farms, our schools, and with forced evacuations be removed from the West Coast military zones, which encompassed California, Oregon, Washington, and even Alaska. Our bank accounts were frozen, and with only what we could carry, we were forced into isolation and exile and my family's lives were pretty much shattered. Now, we were in prison twice. The first was here in Portland on May 5th, 1942. We went to a place called the Portland Assembly Center. Um, that is an actual, uh, what you see there on the screen is the actual sign from the center. Um, and it was there, it was there that I was no longer who I am now. My name was not my name. I was Joni Nakayama at that time. But then I was changed into a number. I became citizen 15259. And I was now three and a half years old, but I had to remember and memorize that number should I get lost in the 4,000 people that lived in that exhibit hall. Weeks earlier, this was the Pacific International Livestock Center where livestock had been exhibited. And it had been converted from animal stalls into human stalls. And we lived there under very deplorable conditions with the smell of animal waste and flypaper and hay-stuffed army cots in an eight by 10 stall. We all suffered from lack of privacy and heat. Um, we ate institutional food and we lived under very unsanitary conditions. And this was actually our first encounter with barbed wire and military guards. 
four months later, September of 1942, we uh, got onto a train. We were loaded at Union Station uh, with blinds that were drawn. And of course, we didn't know where we were going. And this would be our second prison. Our new home was located in Minidoka, Idaho. And this was one of the 10 inland federally owned lands. Um, this was a sacred land uh, belonging originally to the uh, Native American tribe, the Shoshone Bannock tribe. Um, and it was like the Portland Assembly Center. The government was very euphemistic when they called out these names and they said that this is now a place that you will be held in protective custody. Um, this was when it, we had, when we arrived at that place, I do remember the first time seeing my mother cry because there was a awful dust storm that greeted us and she covered my face to protect my eyes from the, the blowing sand and dust that was coming off of the, the, the desert floor in, in uh, Idaho. And she said to me that this is our new home. This is where we'll be living. And all we saw were these rows and rows of black tarred paper barracks. Um, in each of the barracks, um, they weren't designed for family living. They were army barracks. And all we had in there was uh, cots, and a potbelly stove. We had no cooking facilities or indoor planning. And the, the camps were definitely not ready for us. They were still doing construction. Um, they didn't have outdoor um, toilet, the latrines weren't installed. So the residents had to dig holes and use trenches for latrines. And the showers were without hot water for the first few months. We lost our privacy and modesty, and there were 13,000 of us living there. And you can clearly see we had lines to wait for everything, to eat, to use the latrines. Uh, it was uh, pretty hard living. And the weather was really unkind to us. That first winter, the temperatures had dropped to minus 10 below zero. We had a potbelly stove, as I mentioned, and that was fueled by very poor grade coal. So my father would have to go several times a day to fill up the, the bucket to put coal in our for our stove. And the summers were unbearable with high desert temperatures of 102 to 105 degrees. But what I remember most as a child was um, the dust that was there. Uh, dust was always blowing and my mom would be sweeping the floors every day. She had to take, they gave her old newspapers, which she would rip up and wet and then she would stuff them between the cracks of the floors and the walls just to prevent the dust from filtering through. And she did this almost daily. Mm. When it rained, which it did, the desert floor uh, always got flooded, as you can see by these photos. And we had mud to walk on um, after the rainstorm. And we didn't have sidewalks. We just had two by four pieces of lumber that would were used as sidewalks. So people would fall all the time just to go eat in the dining halls, the mess halls, or go to the latrines. Uh, 
So this was really a very strange setting of camp life. Um, the family, the traditional family life of the Japanese had disintegrated. And just like any prison, um, the pro- productivity was always a challenge. Um, I think all of us were psychologically da- uh, damaged. There was anger and denial and grieving. And I know that they all asked, why, why are we here? What did we do wrong? Uh, why have all our rights been taken away? But then there's the Japanese uh, Isseis, the first generation, who had so much strength. And, and they would say, uh, my grandparents would say, Shigata Ganai, which means, well, this can't be helped. Gaman, be patient with dignity. And Gambate, that's a very strong word, Gambate. It means be strong, be silent, endure, and persevere. So that basically was the character of the Japanese. Um, My dad was very resourceful, and he studied in the camp library, and he became an electrician. And he actually ended up being our camp's chief electrician, our block leader, and our representative for our block. My parents were very protective I was a child of the camp and I adjusted to life within the confines of a barbed wire. And I, of course, did not experience any of the hardships that my parents were experiencing. And I was a happy little girl and I played in the desert dust. You can see a picture of me here with my baby brother and my friends. Now, the military came to our camp uh, for a loyalty oath. And they also came to recruit for military service to all the inmates. If you were 17 years and older, there there were lots of questions. But question 27 and 28 was the most serious of this loyalty uh, oath question. And one of them was their willingness to serve in the armed forces. And that was question 27. Question 28 was a two-part question with one answer, and it was very confusing. To swear allegiance, they had to defend the United States government and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese government. Doesn't really make sense, does it? And so... The majority of incarcerees said, said yes and yes to fight for the United States. And of course, they had never even visited Japan. So why would they even have any allegiance to the government there? But then there were some that said no, no, no to 27, no to 28, because they were outraged to fight for a country that had imprisoned them and their families And if they came, if they were Isseis, if they were uh, stateless without a country, and if they renounced their citizenship to Japan, they, because remember the Japanese, I mean, the Americans had barred them from being U.S. citizens. They would be people without a country. The the men that answered no, no uh, to this 
were sent to Tula Lake, California, which was a severe justice of a camp for being disloyal and un-American. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's awful. But this also led to almost 33,000 Japanese Americans who did say yes, yes, and vol- volunteered to serve in the segregated military unit while their families were still behind barbed wire. And these were the 442 uh, All Nisei Regimental Combat Team who went on to become the most highly decorated unit of its size during the war. Mm. In the summer of 44, my parents were allowed to resettle in the Midwest Chicago You see, there was a labor shortage since so many men were serving the military. And the War Relocation Authority had released our family with conditions of leaving Minidoka. My father had to have a sponsor and declare his loyalty before leaving. And so he was sponsored by a Jewish man as a washing machine repairman in Chicago. My dad really didn't know how to do that, but he kind of figured he can learn. But anyway, we were all fingerprinted and we all had these parole cards, you can see, and they could all be revoked at any time. Um, Even my baby brother was kept track of with fingerprints and a photo. But as a condition of release, my family had to attend seminars on topics such as how do you make friends and how do you behave in the outside world? Uh, we had to follow rules. Uh, we, my parents were not allowed to speak in Japanese. They couldn't congregate with other Japanese. They had to assimilate themselves. And they couldn't have cameras or firearms or shortwave radios. There were lots of do's and not do's for them. And this also applied to all the rules that all the citizens as they left the camps in 19, when the war ended, they could leave the camps a year later. And even when my grandparents and my other relatives left, um, they had to follow those same loyalty guidelines. And they were each given $25, a meal ticket and a rail pass to return to pretty much unwelcoming communities and they had all lost their homes where they had lived before. It wasn't, um, it wasn't easy for them. You can see um, they were not welcome. They faced discrimination, housing practices, employment. Um, their lives coming back were pretty hard. And myself... As I grew up after the war, I too, even though I was a child, I was subjected to racism and bullying and, and tormenting. And I, when I was in Chicago, I um, was the first time that I had heard the word Jap. I, I didn't know what that meant because I was living in a community of all Japanese. Um, and children are, can be cruel if they, they don't know better. So I was afraid and I was always ashamed to be who I was. And my mom would say to me, "Um, Joni, just turn your face and look the other way if they talk to you like that. Um, I never thought about my heritage. 
And I was pretty silent like my parents. But when I was in college, um, it was just about the time of the civil rights movement and things started changing in our nation. And I, at that time is when I had the opportunity to learn more about the incarceration and about me. But it took 40 years and another generation before we could even talk about this and before our government finally admitted that they made a big mistake and they sent a formal apology to us and they gave us reparation. And the apology stated that there were no acts of sabotage or espionage and that we had been in prison because of racial prejudice, wartime hysteria, and a failed political leadership. And in 1988, the Civil Liberties Act was mandated. And in 1990, each surviving victim was paid $20,000. But of the 120,000 that were incarcerated, there were only 87,000 to receive this apology. And by then, my beloved grandparents had died. I think about them a lot. They were such brave people who came to the United States who believed that this was the land of freedom and democracy and opportunity. And they left their native lands only to become unwelcomed and alienated, denied citizenship, and then imprisoned. And I remember feeling such great indignation. And I remember weeping for my grandparents and my parents when the apology came. Um, and I honor them for having Gaman and Gambate. It took me almost a whole lifetime before I could even speak about this, like what I'm doing today. You know, our stories are pretty old. They're 80 years old and change is slow. And there has been a recent outbreak of anti-Asian attacks again. Um, but I have continued to use my voice as a survivor because silence doesn't lead to any change and history has to teach. And I am an American and our nation still has much to learn. I have always used the mantra of never again. We can't go back. A few years ago, I returned to Minidoka which is now a National Historic Site. And I took my family with me. And at the entrance of the visitor's uh, center is a beautiful side that reads that our story is not just a Japanese-American story, but it is an American story with implications for the world. Thank you. Amazing, amazing story. Uh, I want to thank you so much again, Joni. It's, it's just uh, it's very essential that, that citizens know these stories. They must be remembered again and again. That yes. life is very fragile and that it's not just Japanese Americans. There are many groups that are. Oh, I know. Oftentimes. So it's important. Your story reinforces right. that message. It's really yes. essential. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that is what I, yeah, we continue to do. Um, I volunteer at the museum and the Japanese American Museum. And, um, you know, this is, 
it's not there. The education isn't there yet in our school books. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end, you know, I'm an older person now, but there's, there's few of us living today that can talk about this. And it's not that I remember everything because I don't, I was too young, but it's because I became more interested in this much later in my life because I was seeing what was happening or actually what was happening to others. And then as I started getting interested in all of this because yeah, there's been some really sad stories of other, other uh, minorities and, you know, people that are of the other and that's who it's really affected my life as well. So I'm not speaking only of ourselves, but I'm speaking for anyone who's gone through a lot. (laughs) It's just awful when you think about our country, you know, doing this to its people, but. Well, thank you so much again. You're welcome. End it with, um, uh, if it, if it, the the men that answered no no uh, to this were sent to Tula Lake, California, which was a severe justice of a camp for being disloyal and un-American. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's awful. But this also led to almost 33,000 Japanese Americans who did say yes, yes, and volunteered to serve in the segregated military unit while their families were still behind barbed wire. And these were the 442 uh, All Nisei Regimental Combat Team who went on to become the most highly decorated unit of its size during the war. In the summer of 44, my parents were allowed to resettle in the Midwest, Chicago. You see, there was a labor shortage since so many men were serving the military. And the War Relocation Authority had released our family with conditions of leaving Minidoka. My father had to have a sponsor and declare his loyalty before leaving. And so he was sponsored by a Jewish man as a washing machine repairman in Chicago. My dad really didn't know how to do that, but he kind of figured he can learn. (laughs) But anyway, we were all fingerprinted and we all had these parole cards, you can see, and they could all be revoked at any time. Um, Even my baby brother was kept track of with fingerprints and a photo. But as a condition of release, my family had to attend seminars on topics such as how do you make friends and how do you behave in the outside world? Uh, we had to follow rules. Uh, we, My parents were not allowed to speak in Japanese. They couldn't congregate with other Japanese. They had to assimilate themselves. And they couldn't have cameras or firearms or shortwave radios. There were lots of do's and not do's for them. And this also applied to all the rules that all the citizens as they left the camps in 19, when the war ended, they could leave the camps a year later. And even when my grandparents and my other relatives left, um, they had to follow those same loyalty guidelines. And they were each given $25 
a mail ticket and a rail pass to return to pretty much unwelcoming communities. And they had all lost their homes where they had lived before. It wasn't, um, it wasn't easy for them. You can see um, they were not welcome. They faced discrimination, housing practices, employment. Um, their lives coming back were pretty hard. And myself, as I grew up after the war, I too, even though I was a child, I was subjected to racism and bullying and, and tormenting. And I, when I was in Chicago, I um, was the first time that I had heard the word Jap. I, I didn't know what that meant because I was living in a community of all Japanese. Um, and children are, can be cruel if they, they don't know better. So I was afraid and I was always ashamed to be who I was. And my mom would say to me, um, Joni, just turn your face and look the other way if they talk to you like that. Um, I never thought about my heritage and I was pretty silent like my parents. But when I was in college, um, it was just about the time of the civil rights movement and things started changing in our nation and I, at that time, is when I had the opportunity to learn more about the incarceration and about me. But it took 40 years and another generation before we could even talk about this. And before our government finally admitted that they made a big mistake and they sent a formal apology to us and they gave us reparation. And the apology stated that there were no acts of sabotage or espionage and that we had been in prison because of racial prejudice, wartime hysteria, and a failed political leadership. And in 1988, the Civil Liberties Act was mandated. And in 1990, each surviving victim was paid $20,000. But of the 120,000 that were incarcerated, there were only 87,000 to receive this apology. And by then, my beloved grandparents had died. I think about them a lot. They were such brave people who came to the United States who believed that this was a land of freedom and democracy and opportunity. And they left their native lands only to become unwelcomed and alienated, denied citizenship, and then imprisoned. And I remember feeling such great indignation. And I remember weeping for my grandparents and my parents when the apology came. Um, and I honored them for having Gaman and Gambate. It took me almost a whole lifetime before I could even speak about this, like what I'm doing today. You know, our stories are pretty old. They're 80 years old and change is slow. And there has been a recent outbreak of anti-Asian attacks again. Um, but I have continued to use my voice as a survivor because silence doesn't lead to any change and history has to teach. And I am an American and our nation still has much to learn. I have always used the mantra of never 
again. We can't go back. A few years ago, I returned to Minidoka, uh, which is now a national historic site. And I took my family with me. And at the entrance of the visitor's uh, center is a beautiful side that reads that our story is not just a Japanese-American story, but it is an American story with implications for the world. Thank you. You've been listening to Keeping Current, the place where we talk about the ideas, issues, and trends that shape our everyday life. I'm Wayne Potter, the producer and host of the show. You can hear my show by using the SoundCloud application or as a podcast application such as iTunes. You can also learn more about each interview when you visit the Keeping Current website at www.keepingcurrent.com. Keeping and Current are both spelled with a K. I hope that you'll check in with me occasionally.